Before we begin, a quick reminder. This edition of the Super Terrific Happy Hour is the final free episode of this podcast. Beginning February 1st, the Grant Williams podcast will become part of the copper membership tier of my new website, grant-williams.com. Now, the copper tier will include every future episode of The Endgame, the Super Terrific Happy Hour, and the Narrative Game, as well as access to a series of special one-on-one conversations I'll be having with a group of truly extraordinary people throughout the rest of this year, beginning with my dear friend and mentor, Anthony Deedon of Edelweiss Holdings. At the site, you'll also find a silver tier, which in addition to access to the Grant Williams podcast, will include a year's subscription to my monthly newsletter, Things That Make You Go Hmm. But you can find out a lot more about all that by visiting grant-williams.com. Here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discuss during the Super Terrific Happy Hour should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, to say nothing of super and terrific, of course, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. People always tell me, you should have your money working for you. Because you send your money out there working for you. A lot of times, it gets fired. You go back there, what happened? I had my money. It was here. It was working for me. Yeah, I remember your money. We had to let him go. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Super Terrific Happy Hour. Joining me, as always, to make it all those things is the delightful Stephanie Pomboy. Steph, hi. Hello. Hello. <laughs> How are you? I'm great. How about you? Not too bad. I, I was going to wish you a happy new year, but I think, I don't know what the cutoff is. There will be a cutoff. Well, since it's the first time we've convened in the new year, I think it's okay. Okay. Well, let's just say, happy new year to you. Happy New Year to you as well, sir. Yes, indeed. <laughs> now, we have a, another special guest joining us today who is a dear friend of both of us and always someone that is uh, is just so much fun to talk to and so much fun to listen to, and that's uh, the one and only David Rosenberg. I mean, you, you've known Rosie longer than I have, I think. I don't know. You know, it's funny. I've only met him once, and yet, no uh, yeah, we seem like two bears passing in the forest <laughs> if i could strain that that analogy but um yeah it's funny because every time i read him quoted somewhere uh or hear an interview with him i think that sounds exactly like yeah. what i would say <laughs> yeah exactly right and he and he, he says the same thing for me so i'm well, really I'm- looking forward to connecting with him well, this is this is uh, going to probably be an hour of pure solid gold confirmation bias, but we'll try and we'll try and, <laughs> we'll try and keep it as interesting as we can. Uh, and so let's stop nattering you and I, and welcome Rosie to the show. Let's do it. So, so I mean, look, the, the, the three of us together, as you, you said, you know, the, the three bears. We don't have a Goldilocks here, Steph. You should probably play that role, I guess, if we, if we were going to cast it. But um, you know, I, I think the one thing that all three of us have kind of sat here scratching our heads about for the last, what, almost, well, almost a year coming up now, is just this disconnect between the, the economy and the markets. And, and Rosie, some of the stuff you've been tweeting, I mean, I'm just sitting there just going, this, this, you know, this. It, it. <laughs> but, but what's the reaction been for, to that stuff when you put it out? Because it seems so clear, but I'm guessing you're getting the usual pushback from people. Um, you know, I, I this... Uh, 
Not as much as I would have thought. I mean, I, I, there's been some. I oh. actually, when, when I tweet, I get a lot more hate mail when or responses when I tweet. I would say that, um, uh, you know, I, I've had a, I've had a couple, a couple of really sharp zings, like how you've missed it. And, um, you know, yeah. uh, well, at what point are you going to turn more bullish? Uh, but I'll tell you that um, I probably, I mean, there's some of that, but nothing like I had when I was at Merrill uh, or even at Gluskin. Um, but I, yeah. I think there's just more that, you know, people who subscribe to me know, they know what they're going to get and they're not going to get happy go lucky. Uh, I mean, if, if they want to go, I mean, there's so many other people out there that have a bullish narrative. So for a lot of people, even though they don't agree with me, I'm sort of like they're, I'm there. I'm there. Like their their um, their brake lights or their their left tail. Yeah. You know, like basically, yeah. you know, um, uh, what's what's what, what's the other side of the story? So that's always been good. Like people say to me, you know, being being quotes the perma bear, which isn't really true, but it's a moniker. Um, but there's very few perma bears. I mean, what me, maybe Stephanie, Jeremy Grantham, and who else? I mean, so there's so actually you, you can you can carve out a nice little career just uh, by being a contrarian. <laughs> well, and also as you and I talked about, you know, this perma bear label is very very narrow. It relates strictly to equities. You know, we've been, you know, rip snorting bullish on treasuries, uh, and that has been phenomenal over that entire stretch. But you get zero credit for that. You know, you're just all anyone cares about is whether you're long tech. So, <laughs> treasuries and gold—they're the enemy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but- well, that's a great starting point because I think right now, I mean, that what's going to happen with the treasury market has to be the main question for stocks, don't you think? I mean. How high can yields get before the stock market really gets brought to its knees? Well, um, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that could happen that don't have to relate to uh, what happens with uh, bond yields. And uh, one of them is, look, the markets are priced in a very uh, rosy uh, second half of the year. Uh, so there's a lot of assumptions. Uh, it's it's not, I mean, I mean, look, we've already backed up. 60 basis points as somebody could say what well, do we back up another 60 basis points and they try and do some arithmetic but nobody has a clear handle on what the real uh what multiple what is the multiple you put on the stock market and uh you know what is the appropriate multiple and everybody does their analysis on the earnings yield and the treasury yield um but i don't think look the i, I think that um uh i mean I, I did some analysis on this just looking at how and you know we have uh uh, $15 trillion of U.S. debt in total uh, refinancing this year. Uh, so I would say that if you probably backed up, even if you normalized interest rates, uh, normalized being that you went back to where we were before the pandemic, looking at the amount of debt servicing that would come out of the economy, I'd say if you went up 100 basis points, that'd be big trouble. But even going up 50 would take you below potential and create more excess capacity in the economy. So even if you didn't get a recession, it would it would feel like one. Well, we've added five trillion in debt from the pre-pandemic. So the, the level of rates one presumes that would be required to inflict damage now is is lower than it was. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Before. Exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, you you could see that. It's it's just a matter. I mean, I was looking more because a lot of the like a lot of companies, you know, termed out their debt and refinanced. So Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, but still, uh, you know, we, we, the, the, the volume of debt 
um, you know, as a share of GDP that's being refinanced in the coming year uh, is like triple what it was, uh, you know, three decades ago. So, um, yeah, and so that's what's happened with the the reason why every single interest rate cycle in the past 40 years has been truncated is because of the fact you have this massive volume of debt that takes incrementally smaller increases in rates uh, to push the economy over or to create a panic attack, you know, in the stock market. I mean, whoever thought that we'd get to now, barely two and a half percent of the funds rate to create the conditions for that uh, um, uh, drawdown we had in the fourth quarter of 2018. Yeah, you know, there was your template right there. Yeah. So, yeah. So anyway, um, yeah. I mean, but it's hard to know. I mean, there's there's a, there's a whole bunch of things that could happen. Uh, it could be it could be rates. I mean, look, uh, I, I'm still bullish on treasuries, but you know, we had I was bullish on treasuries from 09 to 2019. And when you add up all the uh, sell-off days, we had 5,000 basis points of increase. So mind you, we still went from like three and a half down to two. Uh, but there was some yeah. periods, several quarters where yields uh, were backing up. And uh, I guess that what you would say is from a fund flow perspective is that if we get 900 billion, then 1.9 trillion, that's 2.8 trillion uh, right there. And, mm -hmm. and the Fed's talking about tapering. <laughs> So who's going to show up at the auctions? Right. You know, that's the question. If the Fed's not going to be there, at least in the secondary market, who's going to show up? So, I mean, that that is an interest rate risk is more from the supply side because I'm not a big believer that we're going to get um, big inflation. Um, but uh, the market, you see, the thing is that you and I can have our particular view on inflation and be right over a period of time, but then inflation expectations rise anyway. So I guess it would be a something that inflation expectations uh, continue to accelerate that causes uh bond yields to ratchet up and um and, and and you know it's 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 hard to know you know what the cutoff point is or what the overshoot would be for the economy but i'd say that anything more than 100 basis points over where we are right now would be some would be some big trouble rose is is the the, the I mean, this inflation deflation debate is that the key thing that people need to get right because that, that, that's kind of going to be a secular change that we get in the markets that that will eventually see dominoes topple or are we not at that point yet because you know guys like Lacey Hunt are still firmly on the deflation train Russell Napier's hopped off the deflation train and actually jumped aggressively onto the inflation tra uh, train do you think that's the key thing to get right here or are we not quite there yet where it's that important no, I think that well. Look, there, there's there's uh, there's a few debates. Uh, you know, one of them obviously is uh, uh, do we get the big second half economic rebound or not? Um, that's in the market. Uh, what life actually is going to look like uh, once the pandemic is fully in the rearview mirror? I mean, that's another debate. Uh, are we going back to normal, or what sort of normal are we going to go back to? And of course, the inflation deflation debate is a um, is uh, is a critical one uh, because uh, that will be at the root as to whether or not uh, this value trade in the stock market becomes a value trend because the value trade needs yeah. to have accelerating inflation, uh, rising yields, a steepening yield curve. That's what the value trade needs to morph into a, a trend. Um, so look, I would just say that um, the, the, you know, <laughs> You can almost dust off your slide package from 12 years ago. Uh, the same people calling for inflation now were calling for inflation back then. Uh, they're the ones that have to answer as to why it is that inflation in the final analysis, uh, even with a stock market that quintupled, 
and even with a bull market in commodities, uh, <laughs> and even with three and a half percent unemployment, we never did get the big inflation. So they'd have to come and explain uh, why all of a sudden we're going to get the inflation in the coming cycle that we couldn't get in the previous, not just one, not just two, but the previous three cycles. What worries me about it is that um, I totally agree with you on those forces of deflation or disinflationary forces that are clearly evidenced over that whole period, as you mentioned, you know, no wealth effect, fueling inflation, et cetera. Um, but that doesn't preclude people from getting all hot and bothered and getting chinned up on an inflation scare. You know, they see the dollar going down, they see import prices going up, and they assume, okay, well, that's going to lead to CPI inflation. Never mind that, as you point out, it didn't for the last decade or even longer. But what is the possibility? I mean, when I look on Twitter and other, you know, financial media outlets, it seems like this is everyone's basically assuming you're going to see a real increase in headline inflation. And then they point to the fact that the Fed is encouraging that as just, um, you know, prima facie evidence that it's going to happen just because the Fed wants it to happen. Therefore, it will happen because God knows they get everything right. <laughs> um, do you worry about an inflation scare or do you think that anything like that will be quickly uh, undone? Well, look, uh, trying to predict an inflation scare, um, you could argue that we've had, we're living through it already. Uh, you know, the, the tips break evens, um, you know, from where they were in the spring have come a long way. Uh, and now they're above uh, 2%. Uh, and you could debate as to whether or not, I mean, I don't have so much a scare, but everybody's talking about inflation. That, that the, the narrative right now is filled uh, with inflation. Uh, but I remember that in the same stage back in uh, 2010, 2011, we had a very similar debate. Um, does an inflation scare scare me? No, because, uh, you know, if we get an inflation scare, I'll be able to tell clients that uh, this is a great buying opportunity uh, in uh, the bond market of bond sell-off. Uh, so look, nothing moves in a straight line. Uh, can we get a further hiccup, uh, further spasm? It's quite possible. I don't think people like you and I, uh, Stephanie, are in the business of telling people the you know the daily wiggles and uh, and the scare. Right. Uh, you get the scare, then it's up to you and I to determine you know is the scare justified or not. Um, are we in a new inflationary environment or is the market um, mispriced against uh, the future as you and I see it? Um, and so I would just say that. Um, what are the conditions that are going to create uh, that inflation? Uh, you know, people point to the money supply. I get it. But the reality is that money velocity has uh, declined uh, tit for tat uh, with the run-up in money supply. We still have contracting money velocity. Why is that? And the answer for that is because uh, we have uh, declining um, commercial bank credit. We have... You know, this is one of the most important things uh, from the New York Fed was they're finding that three quarters of the stimulus checks are going into savings or debt pay down. And you see that in the data. We have uh, the most uh, unpatriotic development you could ever think of, which is that uh, Americans have paid down their credit card balances at a 14% annual rate over the past six months. It's never happened before. 
and so uh, it's very difficult to get inflation when there's no credit creation, which is what the money velocity numbers are telling you, or where there's no significant wage growth. Where's the wage growth going to come from? It's very interesting that the same people that tell you about inflation are so bulled up on the economic outlook, they believe that full employment is still somewhere at or below 4%. And of course, the Fed's forecast is that in the next few years, we're going to get back to that magical level below 4%. But let's just say that we have um, a situation where uh, one in eight uh, Americans are either unemployed or underemployed. Uh, there's still tremendous idle capacity uh, in the labor market. Uh, we have a capacitization rate in industry uh, that's around 74%. Uh, we're nowhere near the conditions in terms of the capacity pressures in the economy that's going to lead to a sustained increase in inflation. It doesn't mean that you don't get some temporary periods of pass-through in the goods-producing side from commodities in the weaker dollar, but that's not lasting inflation. This is a service sector economy. Uh, services mm -hmm. are three to four times more important than goods. I mean, we are no longer the Davy Crockett, Paul Bunyan economy of two centuries ago. This is a service sector-driven economy. Uh, and service sector is in disinflation or deflation mode. Um, but I come at it really from a top-down perspective on inflation. Uh, I look at the quantity theory of money the Fisherian identity, because when push comes to shove, inflation is an accounting identity. It's not complicated. MV equals PY. Uh, so you have M is running at, say, 25%. Uh, you have V is running at minus 20%. Uh, you might have uh, real growth of, say, 3%. Where's the inflation out of that? It's negligible. Uh, and so uh, I look at it from that perspective. I look at it from an accounting identity because you're trying to forecast a price level uh, or a change in the price level. And then on top of that, I look at the spare capacity in the economy. And we have an output gap right now. We have an output gap that's as big as it was in the fourth quarter of 2008. What's interesting is that in the fourth quarter of 2008, we weren't talking about inflation because, of course, we just came off the Lehman and AIG collapse. Yeah. But look how long it took. It took six years before we even got any cyclical inflation. And then that didn't even last very long. So, uh, look, at some point, you can build a framework where Productivity is abysmal. Uh, we've had uh, scarring and impairment in the labor market uh, so that potential GDP growth is down to 0.5 or 1%. And we come out of this pandemic and demand could be 3%. And all of a sudden, the output gap is basically gone by the end of next year. That's quite possible. You know, I'm going to keep an open mind. Uh, so you got to take a look at both what aggregate supply and aggregate demand are doing and the interaction between those two curves. So I'm watching it closely, but no, I, I'm not in the camp that believes inflation is coming back anytime soon. Uh, and I, I'm not convinced it'll really come back at all uh, because of the learning lesson of the last cycle. And, and the reality is that if people want to talk about going back to some normal, going back, reverting to the norm, well, what was the norm of the past 10 years? Uh, even with a quintupling of the stock market in the real economy. What was it? Weakest growth, uh, weakest 10-year cycle for growth on record. By the way, that includes the rebound we had in the 1930s. Uh, so low growth, low inflation, low interest rates. You know, when people talk about, I want to revert to the norm, well, that was the norm. That was the norm. Low growth, low inflation, low interest rates in the context of a trillion-dollar deficit uh, heading into 2020, a three and a half percent unemployment, a fivefold increase in the stock market, booming uh, commodity prices, and we went into this thing with cornflation 
barely above 2%, depending on how you measure it. And so I quote Billy Joel when I say, is that all you get for your money? Yeah, you're Rosie, it's funny. We, we, the, the, the phrase, the norm, has come up already half a dozen times in this conversation. And, that, and that's something I want to talk about because, um, you know, when people talk about normalizing rates back to pre-pandemic, I mean, they're still, give or take, 5,000-year lows. So what kind of norm does it need for this market to st- either stay where it is or continue to grow? Because any kind of normal scenario that, you know, the, the three of us, well, the two of us, Steph's obviously much younger, but the, the two of us have had multiple decades of experience. And we've, so we've seen what a normal looks to us. And we've read enough financial history to have an understanding of what a general norm should be. We're way away from that right now. So what kind of norm does the market need to, to really not fall over, to, to sustain this current seemingly unsustainable dynamic? Well, look, part of this dynamic is what you talked about before, uh, which was interest rates uh, and central bank yeah. policy. So, look, we, we are in, uh, you know, we're in a world where we're in a financial world uh, that we've never seen before, where we have uh, $17 trillion, not too long ago it was $18 trillion, but just a few years ago it was $14 trillion, but we have $17 trillion of bonds globally trading with a negative yield. Um, how do you value assets in that environment? We have a situation where the central bank manipulation, I mean, we've got a situation where the Fed came in. Uh, now, wasn't this a situation a decade ago where, you know, Bernanke is buying duration, high quality assets. Now they're buying CMBS, they're buying corporate credit, they're buying high yield. Uh, the ECB uh, has gone way beyond just bailing out profligate governments like Greece, uh, you know, they're bailing out the commercial real estate market by buying covered bonds into their portfolio. But the point I'm making, broadly speaking, is this. What does it mean when the average 10-year yield in the industrialized world is zero? Where a third of the fixed income market trades negative. Uh, So you have a situation where these central banks have taken over in the sense that they have destroyed one of the basic tenets of investing in valuations of asset classes for pension fund managers, which is that they have destroyed the capital asset pricing model. They have basically created a condition where the discount rate has converged on the equity risk premium at zero. Um, So, no matter where you look, I mean, we talk about the stock market, but we have a situation now where the high yield market has got a forehandle. You know, it's neither high nor is it yield. Uh, and we situations where, you know, where last year in the spring, you had uh, investors buying Hertz's stock after it, it went into bankruptcy. Uh, I mean, we have, you know, we have the Ivory Coast issuing a 10-year note uh, oversubscribed while it's still in an IMF program. So I, I, I'll tell, tell you, like you mentioned before, look, I, I've been in the business 35 years. I've never seen anything like this. Uh, and yeah, the, 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 the markets and the economy have become totally divorced from each other. Uh, and um, uh, it's hard to pinpoint at what point, you know, reality is going to set into the financial mania that we have. What I could say as an economist is that over and beyond um, all the machinations and all the manipulations 
by the central bank to uh, remove uh, any semblance of uh, transparency in the markets or attempts to assess and evaluate intrinsic value, the market has laid down its cards that it is expecting a significant recovery starting in the third quarter. That So it's absolutely critical, the speed at which the vaccines get distributed uh, against what's happening in the backdrop of the uh, infections um, that are still problematic. Uh, there's that race between those two. Uh, but the market believes that uh, we'll all get the broad immunity by the third quarter, and then we're going to get stuffed to the gills with even more fiscal stimulus, which the central banks will accommodate. Um, so I say anything that upsets that apple cart, anything that I would say causes analysts in the equity market to start trimming instead of raising their earnings estimates, uh, that to me is going to be critical. You know, it's not always- What was that word? A analyst? I never heard of that before. <laughs> <laughs> well, or, or, when, or, or when the market itself, well, you know, the thing is that maybe the analysts will be a, a leading, a, a lagging indicator. But when the market start to sense that um, when the earnings revisions ratios, which are actually are helpful, start to go in the other direction, that'll be a meaningful mm -hmm. sign. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, Grant, if that is an interest rate call. I see, the thing is that I made my life out of being a contrarian. Everybody believes that's what, what is going to upset the apple cart is interest rates. But what are you going to tell me? You're going to tell me it was interest rates that upset the apple cart for the for the tech bubble bursting in 2000? Uh, it was really, you know what? I'll tell you what it was. As soon as Cisco systems missed by a penny on the other side, and people started realizing yeah. we're to take our numbers down, that's when things started to unravel. Pe people have to understand that the stock market and interest rates can go down at the same time. That was a classic exa example of that. So really, it's going to come down to that there's just too much growth being priced in right now. Doesn't that bring you back, it does me anyway, to the inflation question in that, you know, you're seeing all this input price pressure from commodities and import prices. And I happen to doubt the ability to pass them on, which suggests to me you're going to have major margin pressure that is nowhere reflected in those earnings estimates that you're talking about. And to me, that's that's the risk to the earnings estimates, not even whether the vaccine doesn't get broadly distributed and consumers don't spend the money. It's that no one's, everyone's assuming the inflation pressures are gonna go through the pipeline and they, they could well get trapped to the detriment of those margins. How do you weigh that versus the, the vaccine? I mean, is that, do you see that inflation, the little inflation we're having being passed through, or do you think that's a secondary issue and the, and the primary issue is going to be really this the vaccine distribution and and how it affects the economy in the third quarter? Right. Well, look, you know, we, we got the, the Fed's beige book a couple of weeks ago, and it was replete uh, with examples of uh, companies uh, having difficulty uh, in passing on all of those raw material cost increases. And of course, there's also the impact on import prices from the weaker dollar. That much is true. Um, and somebody can go back and say, well, so these companies can't pass it all on, so it'll show up in margins. But even if they pass on a fraction, it's going to show up in final inflation. I, I mean, fine. Uh, I mean, I don't disagree with that. Uh, you know, when you're talking about inflation, it's it's a, it's a complex um, 
you know, um, mm-hmm. backdrop. I mean, I mean, in a deflationary environment, not everything is going down at the same time. And in an inflation environment, not everything is going up at the same time. So uh, you're talking about thousands, hundreds of thousands of goods and services that go into these indices. Not every, So there's some areas that might go up and there'll be other areas that go down. The, the problem with people that I talk to, people I talk to say about, uh, let's talk about the CPI. So they just don't know, like, like they don't know what goes in it. Like I talk to people and, that aren't economists and um, and I don't mean to be rude when they talk to me about inflation, but I, I guess I'm being a little bit rude because I say to them, well, show me your model. Well, of course they don't have a model. So there's just, it, it's just basically just parroting back stuff they might've heard on TV or from somebody else or some report. And it's all about inflation. They hear about the money supply. Uh, you know, the reality is that you, you, you have your Bloomberg terminal open. Oh, look at the CRB index. Look at the Baltic dry shipping index. Oh, there's gotta be inflation. But you see, the thing, as I was saying earlier, is that what is the most dominant component of the CPI and indeed the core CPI? Uh, shelter. Or re- or yeah, shelter, rents, uh-huh. rents. And, and, and rents are disinflating and disinflating fast, and we haven't seen the full impact of it yet. Uh, the vacancy rates in, in the multifamily space, uh, the multifamily, uh, I mean, everybody talks about the bull market and housing. L- look at those, look at the multifamily starts we had in December. I mean, they're cratering. Uh, and so, uh, and we're seeing that supply response because demand has been uh, under severe downward pressure. Vacancies are going up, rents are going down, and 30% of the CPI are rents. Whether you like it or not, 30% of the CPI are rents and 40% of the core is rents. So, you know, yeah, I get it. I'm, I know I know what copper and nickel are doing, but I, I, I never, I've never seen anybody to this day walking down the aisles of Walmart or Target and looking for the pound of copper. Uh, I just haven't seen that. But, <laughs> but rents, and, and, and then when you're taking a look, look, look what's happened with tuition, uh, demand for yes. education, and, and then maybe there's been more permanent impairment uh, coming out of the pandemic, um, pe- people people say to me, "Well, l- 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 tuition, tuition, tuition." You're looking at the rearview mirror, uh, right? They're, they're cutting they're, it they're big time. I mean, all these services, yeah. and it's not just basically people say to me, "Well, airlines will come back, and restaurants will start getting pricing pressure," but they're they're small components. Healthcare, healthcare inflation. People talk. No, I have to, and the thing is that I have to show them the data. I have to show them the data that healthcare inflation is in rampant disinflation mode tuitions, education, rampant disinflation mode. Everybody is living in the old paradigm. These things are disinflating and they are huge chunks of the consumer price index. And then you have rents, which are dominating. Um, so you, but you need a heck of a lot of auto inflation and furniture inflation and clothing <laughs> and appliance to make up for these big chunks of services that are that, that are disinflating. Now that's just looking at it from a bean count perspective. Look, Stephanie, we both know that the year-over-year numbers, because of the base effects, the year-over-year numbers are going to be going up on inflation, headline core, and all the inflation folks will be out looking at the uh, right. at the year-over-year <laughs> numbers. And, and of course, it's just a statistical artifact. But the point basically is this. You have to have a supply and demand framework. I, I, mean, I mean, people want to listen to economists, uh, not just because we're a bunch of fun-loving people, uh, and we have great senses of humor, <laughs> Uh, but that, you know, the first thing we learn in economics, Stephanie, is we learn how to draw supply and demand curves. And everybody wants to talk to the economists because everybody wants to know the price of something. Commercial real estate, residential real estate, it could be the equity market, could be commodities, could be gold. But we get trained on drawing supply and demand curves from the time we were young pups. We have to get the shape of the curves right. 
you know the elasticities we have to get the direction of the curves right but ultimately the intersection gives you the price so if you don't have an aggregate demand aggregate supply framework and you're talking about inflation and that's when i say to people well, what's your model i don't want to sound arrogant when i say it but the reality <laughs> is that you have to have an aggregate demand aggregate supply framework and that's when i always come back to the output gap and the level of pressure on the economy the gap between demand and supply uh, you know, it's even if I'm wrong and the gap is going to close earlier than expected, it's still going to be a couple of years down the road or it might even be longer. Um, but that's where I come at it. And that's when I have to convince people is that, yes, we can get pockets of inflation. It's not going to be a straight line. And we had pockets of inflation in the last cycle. Last cycle, core inflation bottomed at around 0.5. We got above two. Next thing you know, we're below two. Then we have, and then we're going to have another negative. Does anybody think that the pandemic was the only negative shock that we're going to have? We're prone to negative shocks, whether they're, yes, whether they're endogenous or exogenous. <laughs> and the starting point of inflation is so low. People have, you know, and that's the one thing. I don't get asked at any time. What about deflation? What about deflation? Uh, and I still think that there's a bigger, bigger risk actually of deflation than there is inflation. And one thing I'm just going to add here is this, is that we're talking about inflation. Inflation is a process. It's a constant acceleration in the year-over-year trend. So everything that you know we're mentioning here, like is the dollar going to zero? Is a dollar going to continue to go down every single day, every single week, or will it find a natural bottom? Is oil, oil which has gone up to 50, is it going to 100? Is it going to 200? Probably not. So a lot of these are level shifts. It's like the latest one, and we wrote about this, was the minimum wage. Well, the minimum wage is going to go from seven and a quarter to $15. It's going to be inflation. Well, meanwhile, it affects 2% of the workforce, so I wouldn't exactly worry about it from an inflation standpoint. But you've had, you have, you have, uh, it's not the first time that we've had minimum wage go up. Minimum wage was brought in in 1938, and it goes up every few years. But it's a level shift. It's a, it's, it's a level shift, and that's it. And so a lot of the things people are talking about are level shifts, doesn't bring about multi-year acceleration um, in inflation. And I'll say, look, if we come out of this with a rampant credit creation cycle, and uh, all of a sudden we got wage demands coming up the wazoo, uh, you know, Joe Biden and his team brings back unionization and we try and recreate the conditions of the 1970s, I'll scream uncle and say, okay, the inflation's back. Um, but I still think that the, 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 the powerful disinflationary forces of technology, of demographics, uh, they haven't changed. Uh, income inequality, uh, all these things that produced relatively low growth and disinflation pressure. Um, and I think we're going to come out of this, by the way. If you're going to ask me about the, about, the, about the new normal, the new normal, the new normal, and this is what the market's not priced in, is the new normal is going to be what we've already seen. What did we see? We saw as soon as you... Don't stimulate fiscal policy. Look what happened. Three months in a row of negative retail sales. Mm -hmm. Personal income from August to November is running negative 10% at an annual rate. Nobody knows that number. Nobody knows that as soon as the CARES Act started to subside personal, and by the way, even with, even with the rebound in employment, we brought half the employment back, people don't know. I'd say most economists don't know that number, that from August to November, Personal income contracted at a 10% annual rate. Oh, all of a sudden we need more stimulus checks. Well, no kidding. So people don't see that there is absolutely no vitality to this economy. There's no vitality outside of vaccines and stimulus checks. 
there's really nothing going on. Okay, we can talk about you know Netflix and Amazon and Microsoft, but really there's 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 not much else going on. But I'll say this: what we know what we know is that going into this crisis, more than half of the household sector didn't have enough savings to get through three months of vital economic activity. And so what I'm saying is that all of a sudden we have three months in a row of negative retail sales. The savings rate is elevated. Everybody thinks that the consumer sector has all this dry powder to put to work in the real economy. Uh, I think what they're mistaking, and we'll only know this after the second quarter, um, but I'm saying that, and we've done the work on it, that coming out of this pandemic, we're gonna have what's called a post-trauma adjustment. Mm -hmm. And the adjustment's gonna be on the family budget. And it's gonna come on the most, I think, important behavioral aggregate that comes out of the national accounts, which is the personal savings rate, that arcane statistic. But everything boils down to that, because if I'm right that the new normal is gonna be a 10% savings rate, not a 7% savings rate, I've just created a model where aggregate demand growth is gonna be about a percentage point weaker in the future than it would have been against the previous baseline forecast. Um, and that has implications for discretionary spending and all other spinoff effects. But if I have that forecast on the aggregate demand side, that coming out of this, we're gonna be saving more out of income, not less. I asked the question, how do you get the inflation out of that? Without the accelerating demand, if we're gonna become a more frugal nation of savers, Where's the inflation, going to, the lasting inflation going to come from? The amazing thing is how radical that suggestion is, that maybe a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic that led to massive, you know, the highest unemployment we've seen since the Great Depression might actually scar people's memories and get them to undertake um, sort of a, a bunker mentality for a while, just like, after the global financial crisis and the housing bust, they went and they repaired their balance sheets and refused to borrow for years after that happened. I mean, the idea that that could repeat today, much less be even larger in effect than it was after the global financial crisis is viewed as completely insane. Like, obviously you just don't get it because the government's handing you money to spend. So now you've got pent up spending and all this excess saving. That's my favorite notion at all is the, the notion of all the excess savings that we've built up that, you know, obviously has to come into the economy. But that'll get to your third quarter, you know, your second half recovery if we get to that point. But it's again, it's one of those things I don't know about you, Dave, but I cringe in anticipation of how long it's going to take to beat people over the head with negative retail sales, negative retail sales, you know, increased saving rate before people finally exceed to this new normal that you're talking about. I mean, where's the stock market at that point? Well, I, I, I think, well, see, that, that's where I think, uh, I mean, we, maybe we'll get some exogenous shock to rates. I mean, I mean, that, see, that's what everybody's talking about. And, and it may happen because people think, well, if the stock market will go down. Uh, it'll be because rates, rates jack up and that causes the stock market to, to go down. Oh, there's some people that believe, well, if interest rates back up and it's because it's against the backdrop of a, of a better economy, uh, why would the stock market? I actually think everybody's saying the same thing, which means it's not going to happen. I think what's more likely to happen is that there's going to be some profound disappointment over uh, what this recovery looks like post-June. And here's the good news is that we're going to know soon enough. We will know in the third quarter because that's the market has laid down its cards. It's told us. The, the markets, I mean, Grant asked earlier about... Um, you know, do we, uh, 
how, how do we explain this disconnect between the real economy and the financial economy? And it's, well, the real economy is, is, is right staring us in the face today and the markets are looking ahead. And that's just a truism. Uh, the market is priced in a certain future um, that the present day economic data are really just coincident indicators. And I'm saying, you know, not so fast. I, I don't think it's going to be that easy. No, so I'm hearing a lot about, oh, well, we get, we're going to get the vaccines and we're going to have pent-up demand. Great. Pent-up demand. Pent-up demand where? Oh, well, we're going to be flying again, travel, theme parks, uh, restaurants, uh, events. Wow. We're going to have like a V-shaped recovery, I'm told. And yeah, well, that's 6% of consumer spending. It's 4% of GDP. We're going to have a V-shaped recovery in 4% of GDP. Hey, thanks very much. So that, that's enough. That should take the stock market up another 50%, don't you think? It, people don't understand. Yeah. Um, like how many times do you eat out a week? How many times do you actually go flying? Are, are you are you taking your kids to Disney like every Saturday? People don't realize. And and so what, what's interesting is that people don't talk about um, the the uh, uh, the pent down demand in all the goods that we bought. People don't see that in this period. You know, we bought audio, we bought video, we 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 remodeled the house, we bought Peloton bikes. We built swimming pools, we bought cars, anything we could spend money on because we couldn't spend money on these other services. But people don't seem to realize that, you know, when you look at automobiles and you look at video and audio equipment and you look at your floor coverings and your window panes and your furniture and appliances and you add all that stuff up, it's double, it's double. The stuff that we actually could buy, which we did, is double the stuff you're talking about, the pent-up demand. But what are we are we gonna buy a third car? No. So people don't people they don't look at the consumer spending picture holistically. We're gonna get a V-shaped recovery, and I'll be the first to say, I can't wait to fly. I cannot wait to hear, I cannot wait to hear these words. Ladies and gentlemen. This is your captain speaking. I can't wait. To that. <laughs> and, you know, I, I want to go out. Uh, I, I mean, I, I want to go out to restaurants, too. But the thing is that people overplay it. Um, and, and we're all basically it's in our it's our it's in our imagination. We can't wait. It's a mirage to go out again. It's four percent of GDP and all the stuff like when you're talking about big capital spending goods on the home and autos, the, that's double. Uh the services we're talking about that we're longing for. Well, what happens to those things? They're going to go down as the V-shaped recovery and the services go up, and we're going to be left with the consumer recovery. People are going to be wondering what happened to it. Well, we got the V-shaped recovery in that 6% of consumer spending and 4% of GDP. We got that. Unfortunately, you didn't counter in. You see, the thing is that when you're taking a look at the big cap, the big cap merchandise that we bought, the dishes, the crockpots, the cookbooks, um, the home remodeling, uh, the Peloton bikes, the audio and video equipment, all that stuff. Do you know that when you add up all that stuff, which is double what we spend on, on airlines and restaurants and theme parks and events, that stuff is up more than 10% year over year. In any given year, the things I just talked about is up 3%. It's up 10% in the past year. So people have not done, the, the, you see, that's the thing. People, they live in a narrative and they do partial analysis. But you have to do general equilibrium analysis and take a holistic view of the consumer. So people didn't realize 
that as we spent less on these other areas, we spent a lot more on other areas and especially related related to what? Turning our home into our office and turning our home into our place of vacation. Amusement park. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so you know, it used to be the old saying on Wall Street was, you know, um, work in a cave, live in a castle. And now it's just basically live and work in a castle. And we've turned our homes into castles. Well, the thing is that you're not going to do that again in the next, say, five or 10 years, maybe in well, 10 or 20 You're years. also not going to go out and get the nine haircuts that you missed over the last, you know, I mean, that's the other <laughs> fallacy is this idea that the services are going to go up so much as we catch up on all the things, like, I'm not going to go get 17 manicures. I, I think I'll just get one. Thank you. That, so- <laughs> that, that's a great point, because in a classic recession, you know, you're going to put off buying that car, but then you'll buy it the next year. And so 100% right. You're not going to, boy, I, 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 you know, I'm now going to go out and eat eight days, eight out of the seven days right. I'm going to eat because I missed. And that's 100% right. That's why this whole, it's almost a mistake. What kind of bear are you? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm a, I'm a bear that, 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 uh, that, a bear that eats the salmon and his berries. And, uh, <laughs> but, but, the, the, you know, so, so that, I think, you know, those are all very important um, points that we have to consider. But something else, and it's something that we talked about when I talked about the savings rate is, this is different. Like, people say, well, this was not a man-made or this was not an endogenous recession. I hear that all the time. Well, I don't know. What was 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 uh, what happened in Iran in the late 70s in an endogenous event, you know, was going off the gold standard or the OPEC embargo in 73. Uh, it, you know, it doesn't always have to be that we basically committed Harry Carey like maybe we did with the housing and, and uh, banking sector back, you know, in the, uh, in, in the, in the late 2000s. Uh, this was something totally different. Whether it was caused by a bat in in China or not doesn't matter. We we've come off a year of something that we we've, we have not done before. People, this has never happened before. This is never, this this. I mean, 1918, 1919 Spanish flu. There was they never got a vaccine. Okay, it just burnt through. Many more people died as a share of the population, and it and it ended. Well, then you had the Roaring Twenties. But in the Roaring Twenties, the starting point on the debt to GDP, the federal debt to GDP was 10%, not 120%. And they cut, <laughs> they cut individual and personal taxes throughout the whole 1920s. That's not happening this time around. But the point I'm making is that we've experienced a trauma, uh, you know, months, I mean, a year, a year of, of, self, of, of, of self-isolation, social distancing. And we don't know. Like the thing is that I, I can't believe how many people think that they actually know we're going to return to normal. We're going to return to normal. What sort of normal are we talking about here? Because we don't know. Historians will be writing about this period that we were just in. We're we're in the middle of it right now. Hopefully, there's that light at the end of the tunnel. There's potholes on that light at the end of the tunnel. We are going to get through this. We know that, but we don't know. What we do know actually is after a trauma, there are aftershocks. Uh, there is a change in behavior. We haven't fully come to grips with that. But I'll tell you one thing, and this is actually, I think, more positive. It depends how you how you how it comes across. That we become a nation of do-it-yourselfers, and I started noticing this right away, right away, in February and March. Uh, and remember, auto sales took a big dive. What was flying off the shelves uh, were were retail auto parts. And they've continued. We've all of a sudden become a nation. All of a sudden, we know how to change our own oil. How empowering is that? We can actually fiddle with the engine. But I noticed that cookbooks and crockpots and uh, everything related to kitchen appliances, um, 
you know, I, I, I was, I saw this, I forget in which newspaper, either the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, uh, it was about Campbell's soup. And not so much that soup sales are up 20%, as if that's not a depressionary statistic. Right. <laughs> uh, but but that but the, the viewing, the viewing on Campbell's Soup's website for their recipes was through the roof. And the biggest demographic, the biggest demographic in terms of growth rates <laughs> were the millennials. So all of a sudden we become, well, that's why I don't even know how, how much more will we go out to eat? We become a nation of chefs. Um, and, and, uh, we have, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the data cause I love to get into the weeds and this stuff goes up every month. It doesn't go down whether we have reopenings, not reopenings, uh, the pandemic going up, the pandemic subsiding, um, um, sewing machines, sewing machines, uh, um, furniture repair. I mentioned auto repair before, uh, floor coverings. Uh, I mean, do it yourself. I mean, garden supplies, garden supplies through the roof, um, uh, home improvement. So we become a nation uh, much more self-reliant. And that's the thing. Do you remember we were talking about how it's a service economy and, and what happened was what did we close down? What did we close down? What did we close down? We closed down what was called non-essential services, right? Who knew that closing down non-essential, whoever thought that we'd reach a point where the non-essential economy was bigger than the essential economy? Think about that for a second. Okay. It's, called, yeah. it's called a service economy because these people service. They, 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 they service. They provide services. Well, let's say one of the things that went down, vertical down, vertical down, uh, was housekeeping services, domestic services. Mm-hmm. Okay. That went down more than anything else, you know, because whether, you know, we, uh, we, did we, we didn't need the housekeeper anymore. But look what happened. All of a sudden, we, oh, oh. <laughs> That's where the vac- <laughs> that's where the vacuum cleaner is. So you know, there's so it's going to lead to a lot of displacement. But we become a nation of do-it-yourselfers, uh, and um, a much more self-reliant. Um, and I think there's something that goes along with that. I'm not going to say that's going to add to GDP growth. It probably doesn't. Um, but these are just one of the uh, characteristics uh, that have been altered. Um, you know, through the pandemic. What what else happened? Um, look, look at pets, look at companionship, pets and pet services. Uh, there's a secular theme right there, but you're seeing this other one that's ongoing. It's, it's 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 so obvious. It's right in front of me. It's 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 in the data, and it's early stages. It's taking a look at the shift between multifamily housing and single family housing, and then taking a look at where is the biggest decline in housing demand right now. You know where it is. Well, Stephanie, I think you would know based on your own housing preference. Right. <laughs> is, is, is multifamily in the Northeast is going way down. We got those numbers and the housing starts for December. We are in a huge bear market in the Northeast, not exactly tax friendly, lousy weather. Um, but multifamily Northeast is going way down. And, and yet single family, single family starts and sales in the South are going way up. And I think that's what's happened here is that this appreciation for what? for open space and open air. Uh, and uh, and that's a secular shift as well. So all these people that are saying we're going back to, to normal, I don't think understand that we've really had, we had a fundamental shift uh, in people's attitudes and we fully haven't come to grips with it. Um, and there's gonna be winners, there's gonna be losers. Rosie, let me ask you, we, we've, we've talked about a narrative several times here. 
Um, and, and in the back of my brain, I'm still trying to grapple with the idea that we've come across a Canadian who can be rude because I, I thought that was a non-existent species. So I'm still, <laughs> from 20 minutes ago, battling with that. But um, <laughs> this idea of a narrative, and if, you, if we think about this, there's this narrative on Wall Street that we've got to keep the pump going. Right? We've got to keep talking about the positive stuff and, and, and look for this. And, and in relation to that Cisco miss in 2000, it was the same then. But we're at a point now where... Um, Wall Street thinks the Fed has their backs. Main Street now believes the government has their backs and that, that there will be stimulus checks coming. When we need them, the government are going to step in and just print more money. Um, and in the markets, obviously, there's a belief that passive has the markets back. So everybody seems to feel bulletproof and seems to feel like, well, I see all the things that could go wrong, but there's someone who can step in if it does and provide me with a safety net just a little bit lower down. How do you see that unfolding and how do you see the, the, the cracks in that particular idea? Well, you know, it's become a very uh, popular narrative. Uh, you know, the, the, the Fed has your back. Um, and of course, look, there's no doubt that um, it's not just the Fed. Uh, you know, it's the central banks globally. I mean, we have a situation where uh, you, you know, you got the ECB buying almost everything in sight. The, the, the BOJ owns 6% of the equity market. People asked me when the Fed bought, started to say they were going to buy high yield. I was getting questions, well, if high yield resides next to the equity market in the capital structure, won't they come in and buy the SPX? I guess anything is possible. I, I never I never thought that Jay Powell could play the role of EF Hutton. Uh, but, you know, may, may, maybe that maybe that's true. It's, it's, it, 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 it's, it, it's basically... Um, this. Uh, yes, we have a situation where the multiples have expanded rapidly because of the Fed. Uh, that much is true. And it's it's next, it's hard to, uh, with any degree of um, intellectual rigor, uh, really approach valuations when you have uh, manipulation of financial assets to the extent that we have. So uh, I would tend to agree with you to that extent. Um, but you do have the multiple and then you have earnings. Now, we had a situation where we had an earnings procession, but the, the multiple boost from what the central banks were doing was so uh, acute that we had a, a huge renewed bull market, assuming that we can even call what we had in February and March a, a bear market. Maybe it wasn't. It was just so short, despite how severe it was. Um, but we have to be mindful of the fact that does the Fed uh, really control the E? Uh, the Fed can have some influence on the PE, um, but at some point, even the multiple uh, will uh, find a resting place or find a plateau. And that's what I was saying before, um, that I don't really have a negative interest rate story for you if you're bearish on equities. And if, if I'm bearish on equities, it's not because of interest rates. It's because I think there's too much priced in. And the reality is that if I'm right on the second half of the year, that it's going to be a disappointing recovery, uh, that uh, that life is not going back to normal. Uh, doesn't mean that there's not going to be winners, but uh, my sense is that there'll be a reevaluation. It doesn't mean the multiple's got to contract uh, necessarily, but it means that those earnings expectations are going to come down. Uh, and that's my principal concern. And we could have a situation where the Fed is actually forced to ease policy further in light of another uh drawdown in the stock market. Uh, we know how the we always know we know how the Fed's going to respond. We know how the Powell Fed is going to respond. 
but look, we've seen this before. Uh, you know, we had the drawdown in 2018. The Fed was there to pick up the pieces. We had the Powell pivot. But did the Powell stop the 20% drawdown in the fourth quarter of 2018? No, there to pick up the pieces. Uh, and he was there to pick up the pieces this time around as well. And he'll be there to pick up the pieces again. But the cycle is the cycle. I don't think that Jay Powell, I don't think any man, and I don't think any institution is bigger than Mother Nature. I, I think mm -hmm. that the cycle is still the cycle. And I would say that everything I said is true that, you know, that these these manipulations and where real interest rates are, I mean, globally, has really inflated these multiples. Uh, I don't expect they're going to continue to expand. I don't think this is a jack in the beanstalk, uh, but they will stay inflated. Uh, with interest rates in the range they're in right now. The biggest risk to the market is not interest rates. The biggest risk to the market is earnings disappointments. Uh, and that's why I think that we're going to have a, a drawdown. I don't think it's going to be, I don't think we're going to have a re repeat of February or March. Um, but I would be suggesting, especially at these incredibly tight levels on credit spreads, I mean, high yield with a four handle, yeah, you're not compensated for any, default risk at these levels. Uh, the, 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 the CAPE in the mid-30s, the CAPE multiple, uh, I mean, what's that telling you about the earnings yield of the market is 3%? Um, I would say that uh, I would want to have a, a position in cash right now. Uh, I, I would say actually you'd want to have 20% in cash right now. Because, you know, when people say buy the dip, buy the dip, buy the dip, buy the dip. Well, if you don't have any liquidity or cash, where are you going to buy the dip with? You got to sell other assets. Uh, or you got to leverage up. Uh, so where I come out of this is that uh, is that we're going to have another drawdown. I think it's going to be natural to have one, uh, and it's not going to be based on what people think it is. It's not going to be based on tapering by the Fed, and I don't believe that we're going to have inflation causing rates to back up. Um, what I do believe is that there's just too much in the way of earnings expectations embedded in the market right now. That's what I think unwinds in the second half of the year. You actually sound very, um, I, I would say, restrained in your outlook for the market in terms of just another sort of repeat of February, March, not a reversion to mean valuations, which would result in a haircut closer to 50 to 60% from where we are today. Is that correct that you, you, know, you think we have this sort of standard what we've seen over the last several years where the market goes down 10 to 20% and the Fed rushes in with the fire hoses and then we set the floor and then you keep going up and then you have another 15, 20% flush and the Fed comes back in. I mean, do you see that cycle ever ending or is that just gonna be our the new normal for us for eternity? You know, that's the, you know that, that's what I know. You're gonna have this conversation with Grant after the show and you're, you're gonna say, I, I thought he was bearish. He's only calling. Right. He's only calling for down twenty. He's only calling for down what kind 20. of bear are you? I he said he was bearish. Well, you know, look. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. There's a story. You know, um, uh, when I was at uh, when I was at Merrill uh, with uh, I can't remember if it was with, with Rich Bernstein or Bob Farrell, uh, where uh, we were having breakfast and um, uh, I did a breakfast and we were talking about how the market's going to go down forty percent. Uh, and then at the at the presentation, uh, one of them said, well, we're going to go down 20 percent. 
And on the way back to the office, I said, I thought you said down 40. He says, I'll give him 20 now and then I'll give him 20 later. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, you know, look, it's a, um, (laughs) I I could tell you I've done, I I mean, look, all the, all, if we're talking about, if if we, if we were to normalize um, everything, if we're to, I mean, that's what I tell people. If you want to normalize interest rates, you're going to normalize the multiple. You're not going to be happy that the Mm S&P is going to, show up right. somewhere around 23, 2400. You know, when the Fed flow of funds numbers came out a couple of months ago, we did some analysis on the Tobin Q and, and looking at the, uh, at book value uh, against market value. And, and you know, you get somewhere, you know, 24, 2500 on the S&P. So we, we run a lot of models. There, there's, um, you know, Greenspan, uh, 20 years ago, in one of us, Humphrey Hawkins' testimonies, everybody talks about the, 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 the you know, the Fed model, which is just, you know, I think Ed Yardeni coined that phrase, but it's comparing the earnings yield and the treasury yield. Um, but if you do like a, a dividend discount model under normalized conditions, uh, once again, the, the, the S&P ends up somewhere 23, 24, 2500. So I could build you all this stuff based on normalized valuations, but are we going are we going back to those normalized valuations? It's just, I'm trying to tell people, well, this is where you could argue intrinsic value is, where market value is. Um, but you know, we, we know firsthand that the central banks uh, are very, very powerful uh, entities. Now, I said before that they, you know, they can't, they're not bigger than the market. They're not bigger than the market, but they actually, for periods of time, uh, can, um, uh, can have an impact, and, and they obviously have. Um, but, you know, we, we talked about, you know, all the way back, the, the, the term Greenspan put, the first central bank to actually implicitly say, I have your back was Alan Greenspan after the crash of 87. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And tell me since, since 87, we've had countless corrections. Count, we've had many bear markets. Of course, the market's up since then. But, you know, if you don't have to participate in a bear market or correction, you'd rather not. Uh, that will actually help out on your uh, compounded returns over time if you can actually skip the bad times. Um, but that's always been the case. And uh, it's in the case now, you know, by several multiples. But... Uh, the point is that we get the economic backdrop I'm talking about. The market will react to that. Will the Fed end up reacting because the Fed wants to maintain easy financial conditions? They still believe in the equity wealth effect on spending. Yeah, they'll come in and you know, and th- and they'll just expand QE, which is what they've done all along. But not after we get a significant correction that's based on economic fundamentals, and that's what I think unwinds because there is some of this. I mean, we can talk about how the and I've talked relentlessly about how the central banks uh, have created these artificial conditions. But let's not make a mistake here that, you know, part of this rally has been based on a revival of economic expectations. And it's not just out of the blue. Uh, there's reasons to be optimistic because, um, you know, I, I think that what we call Pfizer Monday, that, that to me, that was a very critical day. Uh, that was maybe as important as when, uh, as when the banks got recapitalized and saved back in March of 09. That was a critical day. Um, but unlike March of 09, we had, didn't go in to price in a massive economic recovery premised on a whole bunch of assumptions. Uh, and when I do the bean count on the savings rate, what's going to be spent from stimulus, what's going to be saved, when I count into my models, people shifting behavior, uh, that we already are in a deleveraging. People talk about how great shape the household balance sheet is in. Well, corporates blew their brains out on debt to buy back their equity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We know what the governments have done, but you know, households 
But, you know, on the other side of the household balance sheets in great shape is that they are deleveraging. And that's 70% of GDP. Uh, And I think there's going to be this ongoing, I think we're going to come out of this with a lot lot more frugality on the consumer side than people think. And I'm not going to say that we're not going to have a sudden rush of restaurant and airline spending and going to the uh, sporting events. Um, But uh, there's a whole picture here of consumer spending that transcends that. And that's where I think the disappointment is going to come. I'll just say that I don't think there's going to be as big a revival in that 6% of consumer spending people are talking about. But I don't even need that on my forecast. I know that there's going to be, people talk about pent-up demand, there's going to be pent down in a lot of areas that we actually spend a lot of money on that aren't going to be spent on again. So I think there's going to be a, a much more feeble recovery uh, than people think. Uh even with an infrastructure package that doesn't show up in one quarter, that's going to show up over a period of many years. And you can talk about, well, I'm very bullish on the energy grid and clean energy and and storage and so on and so forth. Uh, that that is all well and true. We had a, a very big infrastructure program with Barack Obama back in 2009. Does anybody remember it? Uh, you can't even point to really a single quarter where it all showed up. But be that as it may, I think that uh, that's my, my, my big premise here. My big premise here and, and my reason for my, my bearishness, and the reason I'm not overly bearish is I think that the Fed will come in and central banks will come in and play the old the old game. But I want to get ahead of that. Uh, I actually want to have cash on hand. Uh, I am going to be an avid buyer um, into, um, into the next bear market. I will be an avid buyer. And I'll be an avid buyer of the things. And what you want to pay attention to, by the way, because because the one thing I will say is that is that the, the the there will not be another bull market in passive investing. There will be a bull market in active investing and you're seeing it already uh, and in stock picking. And it's going to be very important to have some cash on hand to buy into the next bear market. I intend to do that. But focus on the sectors that outperform. Focus on the sectors that outperform in the next bear market because they will outperform in the next bull market. And it's no different than focusing on what was outperforming during the tech wreck in 2000, 2001, 2002. Uh, so that could lead you to a certain value bent in your investing philosophy. And that's probably where I'd be gravitating towards. And I don't even need to have rising rates and inflation to do that. Just focus on the areas of the market that have great valuations. Uh, there's there's areas of the market, Stephanie. And of course, because we talk about the overall market, but so much of it is in growth. Um, but there are areas that are not in the growth area of the market. And a lot of these you can find in the small cap indices or the mid cap indices focused on companies that are trading at a discount to net asset value. By the way, by the way, a lot of those are in the energy sector, which isn't going yeah. away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Rosie, if you're, I mean, this is, you're, I think you're saying a, a end of Q2, Q3 story that you, that you kind of anticipate this to happen. To raise that 20% cash, what are you selling? Because I'm guessing you're not selling your gold. I'm guessing you're not selling your bonds because it, you, you still feel deflation is a problem. I, I know you're a, just a giant in the crypto space, so you're probably not you're probably not selling your crypto either. But uh, is it is it equities as in I'm going to sell U.S. equities, or is, are you going to be selective in how you do it? Is this an equity story, or is it a tech story, or a you know a, a sector story? Well, I would say that um, you know you want to take profits. Uh, yeah, in your winners, um, I'm actually. Got... What kind of witchcraft is that? <laughs> Who does that anymore? Well, no, but I, I think look at uh, 
No, but last year, look, look, people don't realize last year as we as we looked at a, you know, whatever an eighteen percent return on the S and P five hundred. I mean, everybody likes to talk about this, the the seventy percent lift off the lows, but we had a gut wrenching decline going into that. But you know, the the bond bullion barbell uh, was like over twenty percent return uh, last year. Um, so uh, I would say that uh, w- whatever you know, whatever winners you had. I mean, look, I, I would I would say that uh, you know, did I have uh, did I have a whole smorgasbord of growth stocks in my portfolio? The answer is no, but there's a lot of people that did. I'd say that you know, that's what I would do. I mean, I, I already had. Uh, I don't want to have to raise twenty percent cash. You know, I'm a conservative investor to begin with, um, but uh, I did do some trimming around the edges on a lot of the stuff. Uh, that's worked. I, I still own them, uh, whether it's gold or whether it's uh, treasuries uh, or whether uh, you know it's the uh, Canadian bank stocks. Um, I think you want to have some liquidity right now, you, you know, because uh, you know we have a situation. I'm looking at the ICI data. I mean, portfolio managers uh, are two percent cash. Uh, they've never been that low. Uh, I mean, everybody, everybody is all is fully invested. So. Uh, but I know a lot of people that you know had the growth stocks. They made a ton of dough, uh, and I'd be, um, and I'd, I'd be, you know, of course, people will say, "Well, what about my tax? What about my tax implications?" You know, my answer is that, "Well, go go talk to your accountant. I'm the economist. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Economists are accountants with personalities, but uh, you know, go speak to your accountant. I can't, I, I can't help you there. But um, you know, if if the market takes a plunge, you're not going to be worried too much about that. You took profits and pay taxes mm-hmm. on it. Um, and so that's um, uh, so that's basically uh, how I would how I would do it. I would sell whatever you can see in your portfolio that is that is overvalued, uh, and there's a lot that's overvalued. That's what you want to be trimming. Wow. Well, this has been great, Dave. I, it really uh, has. I love getting to exchange growls with you, even if I'm growling louder than you are these. <laughs> I can't believe that. No, I don't believe that uh, either. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you, you, either you caught me in a good mood, or the, the or the two glasses of Cabernet I had before coming on. The- uh, <laughs> Don't, don't worry, Dave. don't worry. We'll, we'll edit out anything remotely bullish. Don't worry, your <laughs> reputation will stand. Dave, thanks so much for joining us. It's been an absolute thrill. Just for people listening um, who aren't already following on Twitter, I guarantee you ninety percent of them are. But for the other ten percent, just let people know how they can follow you on Twitter and how they can find out more about uh, Rosenberg Research. And not the fake account, the real guy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, who would want to be my imposter, right? That's a joke. <laughs> No, that's a high honor. No one's trying to masquerade as me, me. ever. <laughs> All right, gang. Well, happy new year and thanks for having me on. Come on, Rose, we can't let you go. You've got you to let people know how to follow you. They've got to let you know your Twitter handle and, and, and how to find out more about Rosemary Research. Well, I would say, email. yeah, so um, you can email me at drosenberg at rosenbergresearch.com. Uh, I, was, I was brought up well by Depression-era parents. Uh, I guess that goes to show uh, the dark cloud that's always over my head. But, <laughs> but uh, I, I was brought up to be uh, respectful. And so uh, get in touch with me and I will be sure to get back in touch with you. Amazing. Rosie, thanks so much. We'll see you soon, hopefully in person. Okay, same, same. All the best. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you. All right, he's gone. We can talk about him now. <laughs> That was uh, awesome. He, you know, he's, I, I, I just love talking to Rosie. He's, he's, just, he's just so good to listen to, right? Because no one digs into this stuff like he does. 
No, I was captivated the whole time. I mean, I just looked down and I was like, oh my gosh, we've been going for an <laughs> hour too. and it felt like, you know, we were just getting warmed up, but um, yeah, captivating. It's, and you that, know, it's, it's, uh, it's funny. I, I follow him on Twitter and I, it, what he was saying at the beginning there about how he gets more flack on Twitter than he does um, for, for the research, which of course is understandable, but it's fascinating to watch because, you know, what Rosie does is he, he puts up a chart that tells a very, very clear story. Mm-hmm. And then he says, here's what the chart says. And people you know, are crying, he's a witch, burn him. You know, it's, it's, right, it's amazing, right. you don't, the reaction. You don't get it. That chart has nothing to do with the reality, apparently, that's right in front of your face. It's but, astounding. It really yeah. is astounding. But, but that's, you know, that, 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 that Q2, Q3 earnings surprise is obviously something that, it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody because we all know uh, the, the comps, we all know the valuations. But I, you know, I just wonder what is going to be the narrative that is at least attempted to be created between now and then to justify it. You know, because it always seems like okay, we know what's coming, so between now and June, we've got to come up with a story as to why it doesn't matter. Right, right. Well, and in front of who knows what kind of headlines. I mean, when I sit back and look at the markets uh, and this uh, expectation that Rosie talks about, I mean, what is the marginal bit of positive news that's going to drive the market higher from here? I mean, we've added, last I counted, we added $6 trillion in market cap Mm -hmm. from where we were before the pandemic, not from the lows, but from where before we even knew coronavirus existed. So yep. six trillion more. I mean, we're discounting not a return to the normal. We're discounting something like we've never seen before. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it, it's going to be really interesting to see how long we can sustain. I feel like that, you know, that yeah. old uh, trite illusion of the roadrunner running off the edge of the cliff. I mean, we discounted all this great news. And what's the marginal thing that's going to keep us elevated here? I mean, I guess the answer is the Fed. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's already fully discounted as well, isn't it? You would think, right? You would think. But I, I, as I said, I, it just, I don't know, I, I, I had a conversation um, with Paul Singer last week, and he was talking about how everybody is now used to winning and the condition to win every time. And huh. if they don't win... Uh, someone always steps in and gives them a participation trophy kind of thing. And that, you know, it's interesting because that that has worked, right? Every time there's a wobble, as I said, when we were talking to Rosie, you know, the, the, the market knows the Fed's got their backs and now Main Street believes there's another stimulus check coming no matter what happens. But at some point, and we've talked about this before, either the deficits matter, even though people will always tell you they don't, but at some point maybe they will, um, or the Fed's balance sheet matters. Right. I don't know. I, re- I really don't know. But at some point you have to assume it does. But is it worth betting against that at the moment? I don't know. Yeah, well, Keynes would say it's not. You know, <laughs> Lord knows the ability to go on longer than I can remain solvent is, uh, yeah, no is one I've tried not to indulge. But that was one thing I was going to push Rosie on when he talked about how, you know, we'd have this downdraft and then the Fed would come in and it was an opportunity to buy. At what point does the Fed damage its credibility so much that it injects the stimulus and it doesn't get the the 
usual desired yeah. result. I mean, do we get to that point? I guess that's a question we'll only know the answer to in the fullness of time. But boy, I mean, their, well, this, their track this, record is so bad. <laughs> but but it, it's an interesting point. Right? This idea about um, the Fed's credibility, um, the Fedability, we can call it. But, <laughs> but you, you would think that by now that credibility would have been shredded if it was based on anything other than the size of their checkbook. Because by any metric, mm. their credibility is zero. They've got everything wrong. They've failed to predict just about anything. They've failed to prevent anything. In fact, they've actually assisted in the creation of every single bubble of the mm -hmm. last 40 years. But their credibility seems to rest solely now on the fact that, well, okay, no matter how much they suck at everything, does their money still <laughs> buy higher asset prices. And if yeah. it does, then they have credibility. I don't know. I don't know. Well, and it also, your earlier point about how everyone's so uh, acclimated to winning that they just assume even if they lose for a day, they're ultimately going to yeah. win. That becomes a self-fulfilling phenomenon. You know, if people never fear like, feel like they're ever really going to lose, then they just keep playing and you keep buying every dip because you know yep. you're going to get uh, bailed out. So, I mean, I hate to go there, but it does get you into that whole question, you know, if a tree falls in the woods yeah. and no one's run, does it make a sound? I mean, we're sort of in that. Uh, oh, just, just, the, just the sound loop. of people like you, me and Rosie, just quietly sobbing. <laughs> I think that's, that's the sound that you can hear. It's not falling trees. Well, the one thing I was going to say, though, uh, on a totally unrelated note to what we were just talking about is his uh, whole thesis about how we become a fix-it economy and people have learned to do for themselves. And I know I uh, corresponded with you the other night and you were doing a British break-off with your father and Absolutely your brother. Right. Absolutely right. I love that. Right. Yep. And my great triumph was that I installed the running boards on my new Jeep by myself. So there you go. Rosie was right. That? Rosie we're, was right. We're baking and we're auto mechanicing. So right, listen, <laughs> and, 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 until I get food poisoning and your running boards fall off. But listen, <laughs> if, if that happens, we just have to keep quiet about it. Oh, um, oh well, well, listen, Steph, that was, as always, uh, wow, an hour and 15 minutes. That's a, lot, that's a long time for us to be nattering away. And it, as you said, it felt like about 20 minutes. So thank you for doing this again. We haven't even ha had you talk about the exciting start you've had to your new year and your new beginning. You've got to talk ah. a little bit about that. Yes, 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 yes. Well, I've I've been underwater with this new relaunch of my website, which has been, um, I have to say, it's been it's been great. It's been it went as smoothly as these things can, um, and that is to say, it was an incredible amount of work <laughs> and, and an incredible amount of of kind of keeping on top of it once once it was launched. But um, the the guy who, who built this new website for me, uh, I might as well give myself a plug, it's right, it's, it's our podcast, grant-williams.com. Yes. Um, the guy who built the website just did a phenomenal job. I it mean, is gorgeous. He, it uh, really and, he, and he anticipated every possible problem, which was huh. the best part of it because, you know, it, it was just stuff that had to be done. It wasn't problems and no putting out fires and stuff. So... So that has, um, yeah, I have to say that's been a, a, a tiring but wholly pleasurable experience and I'm, and I'm delighted with the results. So anyone listening and wants to go and check it out, go check it out. You definitely should. It's worth checking out. 
and it's putting the rest of us to shame as usual. So <laughs> well, we, we, we can start work on yours now, Steph. Uh, uh, okay, right. Well, listen. Um, all that remains is to thank you for listening to us. Uh, as always, if you weren't out there listening, it'd just be me and Steph talking to ourselves, which would be absolutely fine with me, but probably not so much fun for Steph. We'll also thank our very special guest, David Rosenberg. His Twitter handle is at EconGuyRosie, uh, R-O-S-I-E. And if you don't follow Rosie already, you are out of your minds because he's one of the best followers on uh, on Twitter. Um, you can follow me, should you wish to do that. You'll find me at T-T-M-Y-G-H. And I'm at S Palmboy. Look at that. You can do that now without looking I can at the do writing it now. on the palm of your hand. Oh, you, you called right. me out. All right. Oh, well, man. Steph, I'll see you again soon. And uh, thanks pip, for listening, Pip, cheerio. Pip, pip, cheerio. <laughs> Nothing we discussed during the Super Terrific Happy Hour should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining to say nothing of super and terrific, of course, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.